Today, we're going to begin the first of a two-part message on the subject, testing, temptation, and the goodness of God. We're going to talk a little bit about testing and temptation this morning. I'd planned on doing all of this as one message and uh, soon realized it'd take me about an hour and 20 minutes to do it that way. Too much material. So we'll talk about testing and temptation today. Then if you come back next week, same bat time, same bat channel, we'll talk about the goodness of God in one of the most familiar passages in the book of James. I don't have to define temptation for you. I'm pretty sure about that. Not long ago, I was watching a, a Dateline NBC episode, which they were doing a piece on the gaming industry. Now, I know nobody at Hillcrest has ever been to a casino, but let me just kind of let you in on what they were communicating to me about the thought processes of people who set places like that up. Everything is designed in such a way uh, to get you moving in a certain direction, holding your head in a certain direction, and being as comfortable as possible so that you will stay as long as possible, all with the end in mind. They want you comfortable, not just for comfort's sakes. They want to take you to the cleaners. Can I have an amen this morning? House always wins. And so you need to be very careful. But the first thing that will happen when you walk into a casino, according to what my good friends at Dateline NBC tell me, is that you'll walk in and be greeted with carpet designs that are totally chaotic. Multiple colors and all kinds of geometric shapes that are, quite frankly, difficult to look at. That's intentional. They don't want you looking down. They want you looking up and around. So even from the moment that you walk in, there's a strategy involved. If you go to a, a slot machine area, which is normally one of the first places that you'll see when you go in there, uh, you'll find that it's a very comfortable type of place. Uh, they make it so, especially to women, because they know that more women than men will find a comfortable place at a slot machine. So it's not uncommon to find more warm colors and more warm designs at a slot machine. It's not uncommon at all to find a color television there so that you can turn into your favorite show and not even think about what you're doing. Just watch whatever programming you want to watch while you're sitting there putting your hard-earned money into the slot machine. They've even changed the way they do blackjack tables, I'm told, by my good friends at Dateline NBC. It used to be a day where you'd have to sit on these high bar stools. Blackjack tables were elevated up high. Now you go into most casinos and they've lowered them down to a standard level. Even the dealer is seated at a more standard level. Why? Because they want it to feel like you're playing blackjack at your kitchen table. Everybody tracking with me this morning? Everything there is strategic. Nothing is done whimsically or willy-nilly. It's all done in such a way to entice you. It's done in a certain way to lure you toward an attended objective, something that is good for the management, but probably won't be so very good for you. Did you know that's kind of how the devil operates in your life? 
The Bible says that our enemy, the devil, is a roaring lion, constantly on the move, very strategic. He's smart. Can I make a statement this morning? The devil is smarter than you are. And you make a tremendous error in judgment if you think you're smarter than the devil. He's constantly at work. He knows you inside and out, maybe even better than you know yourself. And that's why we need to be properly spiritually prepared, spiritually armed. And it's why James, in writing to his precious church that's scattered all over the Mediterranean basin as a result of persecution that's been inflicted upon them, he knows that they're subject to temptation as they go through trials of various kinds. And so it's with that in mind, I want us to visit for a few minutes about trials and temptations. James has been speaking almost exclusively in James chapter 1 on the subject of trials, and he's urged his church to remain faithful and joyful through all those times of <clears throat> persecution and hardship. He's taught them that we're in the, when they're in the middle of a trial, they can ask God for wisdom. You remember that, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to them. Uh, we saw last week where James offers very practical counsel both to the materially poor and to the materially wealthy of his church as he knows that money and possessions, whether it's a little of it or a lot of it, can represent life's most common test. But here's the thing about trials. With every trial, you'll usually find an accompanying temptation in the middle of the trial. Isn't that right? In every hard time, there's always the possibility of a wrong or an ungodly response to the trial. And that's why James makes this transition here in verse 13 from testing to temptation. Check it out with me, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Let there be no doubt that the external trials that we experience in life are usually accompanied by some inner temptation. It may be the temptation to compromise in the midst of the trial. It may be the temptation to create a shortcut to get around God's purpose in the trial. It may be the temptation to resist God or to question God and what God is doing, the justice of God, the fairness of God in the middle of the trial. It might be the temptation to mask the pain of the trial through some kind of illicit or unhealthy choice. Maybe the temptation to quit, amen. In every hardship, in every trial, there's usually an accompanying temptation. And it's with respect to the temptations that we often face that James raises some very important considerations here, two of them that we're going to mention this morning. The first is what I'm defining as a definite impossibility. There is something that cannot happen, namely with respect to temptation, and that is it never comes from God. God will never tempt me. 
and God will never tempt you. It may be correct to say, God is testing me, but you'll never be able to say truthfully, God is tempting me. Verse 13 couldn't be any more plain and clear about that. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, interestingly, I'm telling you, the Greek language is a very fascinating language because there are uh, three concepts that are mentioned in James chapter 1, trials, tests, and temptations. And here's the thing. In the Greek New Testament, all three of those English words is the same exact word in the Greek. It's the same word, pyrosmos. And context determines how you translate it. Do I translate? So if I'm a translator of the Bible from Greek into English, I have to determine when I run into that word, is the author talking about a trial? Is he talking about some form of spiritual test? Or is he talking about a temptation? And usually, whether there's a potential positive outcome or a potential negative outcome helps us to determine how we translate the word. Because how you translate the word can change the definition of what the author is trying to say. And so the context of the passage determines that. A trial or a test is an external difficulty that's designed or used by God to grow your faith. We've talked much about that over the last three or four weeks. God uses trials. God sometimes brings them about himself. Sometimes God will take you by the hand and walk you right into a trial. Sometimes you'll walk right into a trial yourself through a choice that you've made, but God will still use it for your good. All things work together for the good of those who love God. So God will either lead you into a trial or he'll use the trial for a positive outcome to grow faith, to increase your trust in God, to create a greater dependence in your spiritual life on God. Certainly we've already seen that God wants you to, uh, to be a person of endurance through the time of testing. But temptation is different, isn't it? Temptation is an enticement to do wrong. It's an allurement into sinful behavior, which is exactly what God doesn't want you to do. That's exactly the outcome God is trying to get you to avoid. Uh, one, a trial is hard, but it's purposeful, it's healthy. And the other is alluring but sinful and even potentially deadly because temptation leads to actions that are always evil and always harmful. And because temptations are often lurking in the middle of tests and trials, you know, you're not the only one going through the trial. The devil's right in the middle of the trial with you. And while God in the trial is leading you in one direction toward one purpose, the enemy is still in the midst of it doing his thing and doing it in his way. And so you got the spirit speaking to your heart in one way and you got the enemy speaking to you in another way. One's out to grow you, the other's out to destroy you. One's out to stretch you, the other is out to trip you. One is using the circumstance for your good, the other is using the circumstance for your harm. And one thing God will never do even while he's trying to grow your faith, is try to unravel your faith. God will never try to destroy your faith. That's what the devil's out to do. 
And there's a theological reason that that's true, and it has everything to do with the person that God is. It has everything to do with God's nature and God's character. Why does James go out of his way to say, don't let anybody ever say that they're being tempted by the Lord? God himself tempts no one, James says. And why not? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. And that, of course, is true because of the kind of God God is. I mean, when you think of the attributes of God, what's the first thing typically that comes to mind? God is a blank God. How would you fill in the blank? Holy, that's right. God is a holy God. I think that's the attribute of attributes when it comes to God. And we could rattle off 10, 12 attributes of God right off the top of our head really quickly if we wanted to. But the attribute of attributes... The thing that best describes God, if you're only going to talk about one, is the holiness of God. God is a holy God, which means what? He's perfect. He's totally distinct from evil, totally distinct from sin. Moral excellence, that's what we mean when we talk about holiness. Isaiah 6 and verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Say that together with me. Together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And because God is the thrice holy God, he always acts holy. He acts holy because he what? Is holy. That's right. And that just simply is to say that God always does the right thing. I don't always do the right thing, and I'm a child of God. You don't always do the right thing, and so many of you are children of God. But God always does what's right, and that's why God can never be the author of temptation. Temptation is an enticement to sin. It's an enticement to act independently of the will of God. It's an enticement that appeals to self. It's everything that's opposite of what the scriptures teach about God and what God is out to construct in the life of those who are his. In fact, whenever you give in to temptation, y'all ever given in to temptation from time to time? Amen. You know, whenever you do, you have to stifle the voice of God within you. You got to stifle the voice of God to give in to temptation. If you're a child of God, because God's always going to shout, as you're walking down a pathway that's unrighteous or unholy. And if you're going to do it, then the voice of self is always going to shout down the voice of God. And that's why the Bible makes it very clear, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, very familiar statement, do not quench the Spirit. Say that out loud together with me, would you? Together. Do not quench the Spirit. Say it again. Do not quench the Spirit. You remember what we learned when we studied Galatians earlier this year, Galatians 5, 16? But I say, the apostle Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's right. So you've got to shout down the voice of God. You've got to quench the Spirit of God in order to gratify the desires of the flesh. So this is the first point. I mean, it's this incredible impossibility. God will never tempt me. 
But having said that, there's no question temptation is very real. It's an ongoing part of any disciple's spiritual journey. And let me just say from the onset, temptation, the presence of temptation is not sin. So don't ever think, oh, I was just tempted, therefore I need to repent. No, the temptation is not sin, as we'll see here in just a moment. Uh, but it's very common. No temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That's what the Bible says. So temptation is a part of any disciple's spiritual journey, and that leads us from this definite impossibility, God will never tempt me, to a second aspect of temptation that James addresses, namely, my personal accountability. I am responsible for how I respond to temptation. Would you say that out loud together with me? I am responsible for how I respond to temptation. Say it again. I am responsible for how I'm to respond to temptation. Now, the thing about temptations, when you give into it, you can't blame anybody but you if you do it. In fact, can I just say, even though the devil's right in the middle of it, you can't even blame the devil. Flip Wilson made that popular, those of you that are old-timers. All the old, the gray hairs in here all remember Flip Wilson, who used to play this character named Geraldine, and she used to say, the devil made me do it. But that's not right. Devil didn't make you do it. Devil can't make you do anything. Did you know that? The devil has no authority over the child of God except what the child of God yields to the devil. All the devil can do is entice you, tempt you, lead you through spiritual allurement, unholy allurement, to gratify the flesh independently of the will of God. That old devil, he's low down, man, and he works in such a way. He's a master manipulator who utilizes temptation to create chaos in the life of a disciple. God wants to grow your faith, and that's why he leads you through times of testing. But the devil wants to stifle your faith, and that's why he makes it his mission to tempt you. But whenever you yield to temptation, you'd be incorrect to say that the devil made you do it. No, James doesn't even mention the devil in this passage. Did you notice that? Now, he will later on in James chapter 4, but he doesn't mention him here at all. And that's because you and I alone are responsible for how we respond to the temptations of the enemy and the temptations of life in a broken, sinful world. Look at verse 14 and following. But, James says, I can't blame God, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when he is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so fundamentally, temptation is this enticement to, to sin by taking something that God originally created as good and then using it in a sinful or in a corrupted way. And again, it's no, tempt or it's no sin to be tempted. You've heard the old saying, haven't you? Sin is not in the bait, sin is in the bite. Amen. 
And that's clearly identified here in these stages or this progression of temptation that James outlines for us here in verses 14 and 15. Let's just spend the rest of our time this morning kind of unpacking these four stages of temptation that are very carefully outlined for us by James. Stage number one is what we might call desire. Desire. All of us have desires. Not all desires are bad, but some of them can be, can be manipulated and used in ways that are ungodly and, and unholy, and that's what you have to be careful about. But it begins with the desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? By his own desire. So the first stage in temptation is when the devil does his work of appealing to this great enemy within you. Let me just remind everybody today that just because you're a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, just because you're saved, does not mean that the sinful nature within you has been 100% eradicated. It's been conquered by the blood of Christ, but it has not been eradicated this side of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there will come a time it'll be eradicated, amen, but we're waiting on the coming of Christ for that. Until then, you still have a broken nature, and that's what the enemy appeals to. See, if the sin death had been if the sinful nature had been eradicated at salvation, that wouldn't leave a thing for the devil to appeal to, would it? There would be no such thing as temptation if you didn't have a sinful nature that was still hanging around like a playground bully that you can't seem to get rid of no matter what you do. No sinful nature is still with you. And that's what the enemy appeals to. It's been conquered by Christ, but it's not yet been eradicated because we still live in a broken world. Neither have the results of sin for the earth been eradicated, which is why we still have volcanoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and all of that. That'll be going away too one day. Can you say amen this morning? See, all the brokenness of humanity and even of the world and even of the cosmos itself will all be corrected with the coming of Christ. But until then, everything is still broken. And the enemy is going to appeal with that sinful nature to that sinful nature within you, it's the devil's playground. And so, simply put, temptation is the devil's attempt to get you to meet what might even be a legitimate need in your life, but to do it in an ungodly way by ignoring the teachings of the Bible and the very clear will of God. He'll get you to try to act independently of the will of God to satisfy those desires within you. And he's been doing it since the beginning of time. You remember in the first story of the first couple, you've got God instructing them. You've got the full run of the garden, but here's this one tree right here, and I want you to steer clear of it. Steer clear of the one tree. Because the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. The enemy shows up, has this conversation with Eve there in the garden, and as that old serpent looked at Eve eye to eye, he asked her this incredible, incredible question that the devil still asks to believers today inwardly. Did God really say? 
did God really say not to eat from the fruit of that tree? See, he's trying to create doubt. He's trying to create complexity where there should have been absolute simplicity. He's trying to create confusion and even chaos. Did God really say? I mean, what's different about that fruit? It's luscious. It's appealing. And it seemed harmless enough to the woman. And after all, a girl's got to eat. Amen. And I'm kind of hungry right now, now that you mention it. What, what possible harm can come from that? I've often described temptation as the opportunity to do, to do a good thing in an ungodly way. Ain't nothing wrong with eating. I mean, we're a bunch of Baptists here today. Eating is a good thing. Amen. You're going to do it today. In fact, some of you are thinking more about that than you're about what I'm saying this morning. Where are we going for lunch? It's a good thing. But you can go about it in a bad way. Gluttony is a bad thing. Eating too much, right? Paying your debts is a good thing. Anybody disagree with that? A Christian ought to pay their debts. But robbing a bank to do it, probably not a good thing. Or embezzling money from your employer because you were leveraged up to your eyeballs is a bad way to do a good thing. I mean, it's a great thing to get straight A's in school. Amen. But cheating in order to make the grade is a bad way to do it. Sex is a gift from God. We, that's the first command in the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. We've never messed that one up. Amen. But doing it any other way outside of your lawfully espoused husband or wife is a bad way to enjoy the pleasures of sex. Everybody tracking with me this morning? Temptation is the opportunity to do a good thing in a bad, ungodly, unbiblical way. And Satan will operate with you the same way he did with the first couple. He'll just try to ration it away, rationalize it away, reason with you. He'll appeal to your fleshly desires. He wants to stifle, frustrate the will of God within you. And this is why spiritual growth requires that you learn to control your desires. Can I make a statement this morning? Not all of your fleshly desires are helpful. Feelings often will lead you into a ditch. How many of you remember that old song? Feelings. Nothing more than feelings will get you in a world of trouble because you can't trust your feelings. You can't trust your urges. You can't trust your emotions. Not all of them are holy. Not all of them will glorify God. This is stage one of temptation. It begins with desire. Stage two is deception. Deception. James uses a fishing metaphor. Any fishermen in the house this morning, would you shout amen? All right, we got them here. I heard some women shouting amen today. Praise the Lord. So we got a, you know, we got a good, James was a good Baptist. He was a fisherman using a fishing metaphor. 
to describe how believers are often lured and enticed. Those are the two words he uses here, lured and enticed. See, a smart fisherman doesn't just throw a bare hook into the water. I mean, if you got to impress your pastor taking fishing, get me out there, just a bare hook, throw it out there and say, watch this, big boy. I'm pretty sure not much is probably going to happen. No, I've become, I mean, old Brad Wood's a great fisherman, man, and he'll open up the tackle box. Old Bruce is here this morning, same thing. And they've got half a million dollars of bait in the box. Well, you use this one for this kind of fish, and you use this one for that kind of fish, and oh, man, we're going snapper fish. We've got to do this today. We're going to use live bait today. These little small fish, we're just going to cut up, put on the hook. Man, it's a very sophisticated kind of thing. You don't use a bare hook. You bait it first. Something you know is going to be appealing to the particular fish you're trying to catch. I've come to the conclusion fish really aren't very smart animals. All they do is wiggle around and eat. Somebody described a fish as nothing more than a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. That's it. I heard a guy say one time, fish swim in schools, but they really never learn anything. That's the problem with them. They keep biting that hook, don't they? Now, I know what a lot of people think. Here's the thing, preacher. That, those are fish. You're talking about fish. I'm a lot smarter than a fish. You sure about that? Maybe we should ask the governor of New York this morning. If he thinks he's smarter than a fish, played fast and loose in his relationships with women, cost him his office. What's amazing to me about that is two governors before him, the same thing happened. That guy, two governors before the most recent governor, used to prosecute prostitution rings only to find out he was all up in one. Cost him his office. Not very smart. Maybe we should interview the former president of Enron or Tyco Toys or Lehman Brothers or AIG. Maybe we should interview Bernie Madoff, the personal investor. Maybe we should ask all of them if they were smart enough not to take the bait when it came to money and greed. Maybe we should go back to the Bible and interview King David for a few minutes or Achan or Ananias and Sapphira. All these great biblical characters who were right in the midst of the people of God, right in the midst of the law of God, schooled and trained in the word of God, still didn't have the spiritual will to resist and end up becoming deceived by the enemy within. See, the thing about Satan is he knows how to change his bait in order to capture the kind of fish he's after. And so don't ever think that you're smarter than the devil. You're not smarter than the devil. He's a master deceiver. He knows where you're vulnerable. And he knows how to identify those vulnerabilities in a believer's life with pinpoint accuracy. In fact, temptation is usually going to come to the areas in your life where you most need to grow. 
The areas that you probably most need to grow are the areas in which you're likely the most vulnerable, and those are precisely the areas that the devil will target. And so if you've got a problem with self-control, somebody... I had somebody this morning, my precious wife, in the car, and we're driving on this lovely morning, and the light turned green, and within a nanosecond, the guy behind me is laying on the horn. And I was tempted not to act like a godly minister of the Lord. <laughs> I wish I could tell you the thoughts that ran through my mind in that moment. I'm serious. I could feel my blood pressure rising. I wanted to just keep my foot on the brake. And dare the guy to do something about it. And the Holy Spirit reminded me what I was preaching all this morning. <laughs> oh, man, Lord, I, the Lord knows I needed a practical application of the message today on the way to church. If you have a problem with jealousy, you're probably going to have a neighbor or two that keeps driving home or coming home with all these new toys. And you're, you're going to have to figure out how to respond to that. You're either going to seethe with resentment, keep them at arm's length, give them the silent treatment. Maybe you'll run out, put stuff on credit cards in order to keep up with these people that you don't even like anyway. Or you'll learn to simply rejoice with your neighbor and learn to be content with how the Lord has blessed you. See, temptation is an opportunity to respond to some condition or stimulus either in a Christ-like way or in a devil-like way. I mean, when you think about it, that's the only two possible responses. Either I'm going to look like Christ in this response or I'm going to look like the enemy in this response. And so the progression continues. It begins with desire. It moves to deception. And then stage three of temptation is disobedience. And this is the tragedy. Verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Desire becomes sin. There's no sin in desire. There was no sin for Eve in looking at the fruit and thinking, boy, that looks really luscious. No sin there. But when you take the bait, it becomes sin. Sin always starts with a look. But the problem is the look can turn into a gaze. And still, at this point, nothing, nothing catastrophic has happened, even with a gaze. But if the gaze isn't checked, then you might take the bite. And that's when you get hooked. Sin is in the bite when desire becomes sin. James switches his illustration here from fishing to childbirth. And he says that yielding to the lure of temptation is like the gestation of a baby in a mother's womb. I mean, these are two radically different illustrations. But we all know how babies are made, at least I hope you do. I'll have to preach another message on the birds and the bees later if you don't. But we know how babies are made. It begins with desire, and the desire leads to an action, and the action leads to a conception, and the conception leads to a consequence. Everybody with me say amen. 
I don't have to draw anybody a picture today. And that takes us to stage four of temptation, which is death. Desire, when it has conceived, verse 15, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Now, it's not a perfect analogy here, but James's point is that decisions always carry consequences. I mean, he's using the birth of a baby here as an illustration of temptation when the reality is nothing brings more joy and happiness into the life of a family than the birth of a baby. So it's not a perfect illustration, but don't miss his point. I mean, his point is simply this. Decisions always carry consequences. And when you fail to resist temptation, there will be a conception of sin. And when sin is conceived, it begins to grow. And it's not going to bring joy like the birth of a child. Instead, it's going to bring fruit, but it's going to be bitter fruit, guilt, frustration, brokenness. Sometimes, I mean, he uses the word death, and sometimes it can bring physical death as well. And this is why it's so important to learn to base our responses, to learn to deal with with the temptation that we inevitably will face along our spiritual journey in a fallen, broken world, we learn to base our decisions on truth, not on feelings. Everybody still with me? Say amen. We base our decisions when faced with temptation not on how we feel. We base our decisions on what we know to be absolute truth. And this is why you have to know the Bible. We base our decisions not on how we feel. We base our decisions on what God has said. Because if you don't, the consequences could be ruinous. See, the devil got Eve to doubt what God had said was true. Did God really say not to eat that truth? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that's why the only way to live in victory over the inevitable temptation that you face is to know what God has said and to embrace it as truth and take your stand upon it and respond accordingly. Because if you don't, the consequences, death. The consequences could be ruinous. I mean, think of the consequences had Jesus yielded to those temptations of the devil in the wilderness. I mean, the first thing that happened to Jesus after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested 40 days and 40 nights by the devil. And think of the consequences that he not responded. Three temptations recorded, every one of them, Jesus responds how? It is written. He went back to the Bible to counter the devil on all three of those temptations. It is written, and then Jesus quotes a verse out of Deuteronomy. Unbelievable. That's what you got to do. Because the devil can't handle the scriptures. He can't handle the truth. So you want to consider the consequences. Think of the consequences when Adam and Eve yielded to that temptation there in the garden. The Bible says they died instantly, spiritually. And so did we. 
Every baby that's ever born comes into this world in a spirit of, of, uh, of, of spiritual death. That's a consequence of that first sin. Think of the consequences when David yielded temptation by lying with a woman who wasn't his wife, Bathsheba. Think of the consequences. A man was murdered. David's family was plagued with chaos and confusion that lasted for the rest of David's life. See, the way you respond is to look at a guy like Joseph, right? Joseph is the great example of how to respond to temptation. And he was just, he didn't have a Bible. He was just responding as led by the Spirit of God. Because when Joseph was faced with the temptation to satisfy what was a legitimate need, sex, in an illegitimate way by lying with a woman who would not leave him alone, what did he do? He ran away. That's what he did. He got out of there. And when it comes to temptation, the Bible gives us permission to respond like cowards. Because the smartest and the most courageous thing a believer can do when faced with temptation is to remove themselves from the source of it. Amen. And that's why David is the great example. Now, it cost him in the short run, but it reaped a harvest of righteousness in the long run. Let me ask you a question this morning. Y'all still tracking with me? Whatever it is that you know to be the wrong thing to do but feel so compelled to do it, let me ask you this. Is it worth losing your marriage over it? Is it worth potentially losing your family? Whatever it is, is it worth disappointing your parents? Worth disappointing your teachers? Is it worth alienating your friends? Whatever it is, is it worth losing your job? Losing your ministry? Is it worth losing the scholarship? Is it worth losing your influence as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that moment of pleasure or that act of disobedience worth the possibility of humiliating yourself to those closest to you in life? I'm very thankful that the Scriptures teach me that when it comes to temptation, there's always a way of escape. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful and will not with the temptation, but make a way of escape that you may be able to overcome it. And let me tell you, one of the critical um, factors in the way of escape of temptation, write this down if you're taking notes, because this is a critical word, accountability. Accountability. Nine times out of 10, the people that yield to temptation and suffer the repercussions that come from temptation are not accountable to anybody in their spiritual life. It's awfully difficult to overcome temptation when you're isolated spiritually. You need connection. You need fellowship. You need connection with God. You need connection with the Word of God. You need connection with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need spiritual friends connected with you. 
who aren't ashamed to ask you the hard questions about your walk in the Spirit of God. James will say it this way in James chapter 4. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's how you walk in consistent victory, and that's how you overcome the problem of temptation and the enemy that lies within. This is the Word of God, and all God's people said, Amen.